Hello, my name is David Lee and welcome to Podcasts by Brodies. Experts from Brodies operate in many areas of the law every day and their clients ask a very wide range of questions during their time working with the lawyers, whether they're navigating new or more familiar situations together. In our series, What Do I Do If?, Brodie's experts from various fields explain how they help clients when faced with some of those different and often difficult questions. The latest episodes feature Brodie's personal and family team, and today we're looking at the question, what do I do if I've been diagnosed with dementia? I'm joined for this extremely important and very relevant discussion by Jessica Flowerdew, Senior Associate at Brodie's, and Jen Hall, Head of National Support Services with Alzheimer's Scotland. Welcome to you both. And Jen, if I can come to you first, can you give us some idea of the scale and the number of people and families touched by dementia in Scotland and across the UK? Absolutely. Um, so dementia is very much an umbrella heading, um, you know, that describes a collection of neurological conditions um, that is a essentially um, affecting people's brains. Um, dementia is huge um, if we're talking about it in terms of scale. In the UK alone, there is estimated to be 944,000 people uh, living with dementia in the UK. And if we break that down um, to what that looks like in Scotland, there's estimated to be in excess of 95,000 people living with dementia in Scotland. Let's break that down further to about 4,000 of that statistic are people under the age of 65. And certainly from my experience, we are hearing from a lot of younger people that are worried about dementia and on that kind of journey to getting a diagnosis of dementia. And just to kind of look at the gendered aspect of that as well, dementia predominantly affects women. So there's two thirds of that statistic that are female and um, that are living with a diagnosis of dementia. And sadly, um, in the absence of a cure, we are looking at um, more than a million people in the UK will be living with dementia by 2030. OK, well, thank, thanks very much for that, Jen. Very sobering statistics there. And you touched a little bit on it there, but dementia is very much a kind of spectrum of, of different conditions. Um, it's sometimes easy to think that dementia immediately means incapacity, but that's not really the case, is it? Absolutely. And I think, you know, the law um, very clearly uh, tells us that capacity is something that should always be assumed in Scotland. So until we know otherwise, we are always assuming that human beings have capacity, particularly to make decisions that impact on their lives. Um, but, you know, incapacity is something that if you have a diagnosis of dementia, that doesn't automatically equal incapacity. Um, and if we're really adopting a, a supported decision-making model, which we absolutely should be, because it's you know in line with a human rights-based approach, which Alzheimer's Scotland you know, adopt and, and apply, um, we want to make sure that we are um, you know, assuming capacity um, in all cases. But unfortunately, you know, when it comes to dementia, um, eventually there may be, you know, it may be that that person is unable to, to weigh up their options and, you know, to make reasoned judgments and to protect their own interests. And that's really when the law, um, you know, comes in to protect that person's rights. Um, and we want to be thinking about things like future planning, um, you know, and, and legal instruments, I suppose, that are there to, to allow for that to happen. So, for example, powers of attorney guardianship um that kind of thing okay thanks very much so you've brought us into the legal aspect so we'll bring you in here jessica um 
if you're diagnosed with dementia, what should your first step be um, in terms of being an individual and the wider family? Yeah, so as um, as Jennifer's said there, um, a diagnosis of dementia doesn't necessarily mean that someone's unable to give you instructions, is unable to make a, a legal act. Um, so uh, as lawyers, we have to, um, we, we can't rely on a presumption of capacity when we're taking instructions. We have to, um, we have to be very certain that the person who's instructing us understands what they're doing. Um, but we have to, um, explore ways in which we can facilitate someone to exercise their capacity because as Jennifer said, um, the, the law is moving very much towards a supported decision making, um, model so we have to we have to think about the, the the right time to speak to a client the ways in which we can um make them comfortable the, the the ways in which we can facilitate them to understand what it is that they're doing so we don't immediately assume that someone's unable to instruct us um, because they have got a diagnosis of dementia and as soon as possible after you have received your your diagnosis um, you should you should speak to a lawyer about what you need to do to protect yourself um, going forward um, and we don't um, we, we don't operate a, a one-size-fits-all um, model here at Brodie's. Um, we give bespoke advice to our clients, so we will listen to um, their objectives, their concerns, and um, we we will advise accordingly. So the advice we give to one person won't won't necessarily be the same advice as we give to somebody else. Okay, before I come back to you again, Jessica, I'll go back to you, Jen. Just the point that Jessica made there. It must be quite challenging to figure out for someone diagnosed with their family when to, you know, involve a lawyer because every case is going to be different. Everybody's decline is going to be at a different pace and whatever. How do you how do you try and get it right uh, in terms of advising them when it is appropriate to to look to the law? I think that's a really important question. And in Scotland, um, we have a post-diagnostic support guarantee. So as a result of the first dementia strategy, which came back in 2010, um, the Scottish government have guaranteed um, that and promised that anyone getting a diagnosis of dementia is entitled to a minimum of one year's post-diagnostic support. Now that looks different depending on the locality, um, you know, so the person and where, you know, where they live. Um, but Post-diagnostic support is predominantly delivered by Alzheimer's Scotland link workers, or it might be a health professional in a health board area. Um, but that is a real opportunity there to start to have these conversations because post-diagnostic support is about preparing the individual and their family, um, you know, to think about the future. What is dementia? What does this mean for me? What might this look like going forward? What are the really important decisions that I might need to make that I want to happen or that I absolutely don't want to happen? And that's when things like, you know, conversations about what a power of attorney is, what that allows um, significant people in that person's life to take on as a responsibility become really crucial. You know, so understanding what that looks like for them and the benefit for them, I think um, it can be a really empowering conversation to have. So I think post-diagnostic support is a real opportunity there um, for them to be seeing, you know, at this point, you might want to be thinking about instructing a lawyer to put in place these kind of, of tools. Okay, thanks very much. And so, Jessica, what exactly is a power of attorney and why is it so important in this kind of context? 
So a power of attorney is a legal document that allows you, the grantor, to appoint a person or persons to make decisions about your property and your finances and also your welfare. Um, it, it the, There are two types of power of attorney in Scotland. Um, as I said, the, the power of attorney that allows you to to appoint someone to make decisions about your property and finances and, and the other is um, the the power of attorney that allows you to appoint someone to make decisions about your personal health, your your care, your well-being, your, your overall welfare. Um, we can prepare them as individual documents um, or as one combined document known as a combined continuing and welfare power of attorney. They are um, vital uh, for, for everyone Um not not just for people who have received a diagnosis of dementia. Um, we recommend um, that everyone puts a power of attorney in place to um, future-proof, um, to protect themselves in the event of a sudden loss of incapacity, for example, or a temporary loss of, of capacity. Um, and um, the... They, they, they can be useful in, in many circumstances. Um, they can be useful for people who, who still have capacity. So a continuing power of attorney, which is a financial and property power of attorney, is called a continuing power of attorney because it can be used straight away. So it can be used as soon as it's been signed and registered with the Office of the Public Guardian, which is a requirement for all powers of attorney. Um, and that's that's practically really useful. There are people who are perhaps um, so who've maybe just initially received a diagnosis of dementia. They've still got capacity, but they're perhaps physically um, less able than they were, or they're a bit nervous um, about dealing with things that that were otherwise um, really normal and everyday for them. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a frightening time. Um, they might be nervous about using the phone. They might be nervous about going to the bank, and uh, a, a power of attorney can can be a really useful document to allow a, a member of their family, a friend, a relative, to to start help supporting them. Um, it thereafter continues to be effective. Hence its name. It continues to be effective after that person has has lost capacity. So a, a, a financial power of attorney um, isn't isn't just for people who who don't have capacity. It can be really useful before then. Um, a welfare power of attorney is is different. That can only ever be used when the grantor has has lost capacity to make their own welfare decisions. And I think that's another thing that is really important for people to understand about powers of attorney. Um, it's it's not one of the concerns that people have about putting that in place is that they're somehow relinquishing control. They're they're handing over such a, a considerable um, power to to somebody else, and and that's true. You you, you need to be very comfortable um, about who you're appointing. You you need to know that that's a person that you can trust, um, someone who will make the right decisions, someone who will take your personal views into consideration when acting on your behalf. But while you retain capacity, you always um, you, you always hold a trump card. So you're you're in control, and you will make your own decisions and be responsible for your your own decisions. Um, and capacity is fact and decision specific. So you might have lost capacity to do some things, um, but you might retain capacity to do other things. 
um, and your your attorneys when they're operating your power of attorney or acting for you, making those decisions for you, should be mindful of that at, at all times. Should should bear in mind the fact that you know there are some things that you can still do for yourself, e- even if there are other things that you need support with. Okay. When um, people talk about power of attorney for the first time, do you find it's well understood or is it something that's a little bit, people are a bit anxious about it and they don't really understand what it's all about? Yeah, I think anxious is a very good way to to um, describe what we hear from a lot of um, people accessing support from Alzheimer's Scotland. Um, I think, you know, just really interested there in what Jessica was saying and describing, um, you know, what power of attorney can offer people. Um, but there are a lot of myths and misconceptions around what that means. Um, you know, I know, for example, um, <laughs> my parents were guarded about putting in place a power of attorney um, based on, you know, when does that kick in? Is that kept in the bottom drawer until such times as I lose capacity or can somebody step in and make decisions that I'm not okay with? Um, so that's where the principles, I think, of the adults with incapacity legislation come in and are really, really important. And I don't feel like a lot of family carers um, and people with dementia have a really good understanding about what those principles mean and how they should look in practice. You know, So making sure that carers, particularly if they're taking on the responsibility of a power of attorney, um, that they are really really, um, you know, up to speed and, and what their responsibilities are there when they're making decisions. It is on, you know, they're making the decisions that the person who is, um, you know, lacking in that area of capacity, um, they'd be making those decisions anyway. So it's not the decisions that they would make, it's the decisions that the person would make. And that should be spelled out, I think, at the, you know, from the, the outset when you're putting that document in place, particularly when it comes to the, um, decisions around welfare, um, for example, and, and you know, care going forward um if that makes sense if that answers that question okay thanks thanks very much jen and just to put it in a wider context jessica um we've talked there a lot about power of attorney what about that bigger picture of wealth management tax planning potential impacts on a family business how important is it to look at that that big picture yeah, it's really important. Um, it's really important. And that's where the sort of bespoke advice c- comes in. You know, not everybody's circumstances are the same. Um, people have different family backgrounds, different situations, different things that they're looking to achieve. Um, and it's really important to, to think about that um, and to think about the impact that your incapacity might have on those things. Um, so encouraging clients to have discussions with their families and um, with the people that they're choosing to appoint as their attorneys um, about what their wishes are around those things um, is really important, encouraging them to have those conversations um, because, as as Jennifer said, they're... Um, attorneys are, are duty bound to adhere to the, the principles in, in adults with incapacity legislation um, in Scotland um, and part of uh, part of their duty is to take into consideration the the grantor's views at all times um, in everything that they do so so it's really important for someone who's putting that document in place to think about what they would want um, you the there, there are different things that, that, that people can do to, to, to make those wishes explicitly clear. Um, 
you, you might want, for example, to draft a letter of wishes that's kept alongside your power of attorney um, that provides your attorneys with very detailed instructions about what you would want. So if you do have a family business, for example, detailed instructions about um, about how you would like that to be dealt with. Um, if you're in the habit of making gifts um, for for tax planning reasons, um, you, you might want to leave your attorney directions about about that, um, about how they should continue to manage that for you in the future. Um, you might have really strong views about your care, so um, you, you might have views about things that are as as sort of fundamental as what you wear and um, what colour your hair is and things like that. Um, and you can um, you, you're you're at liberty to to record that um, in in a letter to your attorneys. Okay. That's re- that's really interesting that you can put really really practical considerations into into that document. And and Jen, again, we've we've touched a lot there on the kind of legal side of things, but we're we're morphing into that kind of personal side as well of making sure that that grantor's wishes are very much followed. Um, what is that wider support beyond the legal um, issues that's available for individuals and families after a diagnosis of dementia? So as I said earlier, once um, a person receives a diagnosis, they are entitled to that minimum of one year's post-diagnostic support. Now, people can't refer into that. At the point of diagnosis, a a referral to post-diagnostic support should be made. So it's important that people are aware that that is their right and they can chase that up. They can follow that up with the person who gave the diagnosis to them. Now, beyond that, Alzheimer's Scotland, we are very much, you know, we've got very strong local routes across Scotland, but we're a national organisation. Um, so we have a, a network of dementia advisors that operate across Scotland. Um, and more often than not, people will have a dementia advisor in their local uh, their local area. So I would encourage people that are worried about dementia, that have a diagnosis of dementia, that are caring for somebody with dementia, or that may have a friend or a family member that is struggling with dementia, to get in touch with their local service. Now, you can access that through our free phone 24-hour dementia helpline. Um, and the number for that is 0808 808 3000. And you can also email us as well at helpline at altscot.org. Um, I'm sure we might be able to make those, those details available. But the, the helpline is often the first point of contact for people. And we can offer information we can provide emotional support. A lot of the people that call our helpline, they're often in a point of crisis. Um, you know, things have really got to, to breaking point because they have been, um, you know, doing things for, for so long with little support. But it's important that people know that there is support available. Sometimes it can be a challenge to access and it's knowing what's there um, and what's available. But if you call our helpline, we'll be able to point you in the right direction and provide you with information um, along the way. Um, so yeah, that's that's a bit about what Alzheimer's Scotland um, deliver, but also there's other um, you know points of support out there as well that we can signpost on to um, if it's appropriate to do so. So I would encourage people to get in touch. Okay, thanks, Jen. And we said before it's very much a spectrum. Um, you know, dementia isn't just one thing. Can you give us some examples of those real diverse experiences that that of people living with dementia in their day to day lives? 
I think, um, you know, it's so hard because I think we touched on it earlier, but it's such an individual experience. Um, you know, I remember um, meeting a, a gentleman who was our chair for the, the Scottish Dementia Working Group, Henry Rankin. Um, and Henry had a diagnosis of dementia. And he says to me, once you've met somebody with dementia, you've met one person with dementia. The experience can be so unique. So um, what I would say is that you know, dementia is something that is still very much shrouded in stigma. Um, people still struggle to talk about it. Um, you know, for some people, um, it's this thing about their identity and how that is chipped away at, you know, as dementia progresses. But it's really important to know that it is possible to live well with dementia in the absence of a cure, um, you know, and, and we don't have a cure for dementia at the moment. Um, but it is important that people know that there are things that they can do that promotes a really good quality of life um, and that ensures that they can live well. But that includes reaching out for support. Um, and we all need support at different points in our life. So, um, you know, what I would say is we've got um, the Scottish Dementia Working Group, which is a group of people with lived experience. They've all got a diagnosis in that group. And they are fundamental to fighting for... Um, you know, that, that kind of change that you want to see in policy um, and to improve the, the lived experience and to make sure that people with dementia have their rights um, realised, um, you know, and enshrined in law. So um, they're a really active group. Um, they're people with that diagnosis. And I suppose that they're really illustrating day to day that it is possible to live well, um, you know, if you've got the right support in place. Great. And Jessica, is kind of similar question to you about that diversity of experience, I guess. Um, I'm sure family dynamics sometimes do get in the way of um, powers of attorney and, and taking that the, the, the right way forward for, for someone who is diagnosed. How do you help people make those difficult decisions about what needs to be done? And how important is it that as well as giving that legal advice, you, you've got that empathy and understanding of that different experience? Yeah, so um everybody's as Jennifer said, everybody everybody's experience of this is, is very different. Um and no two clients are the same. Um we encourage um our our younger clients to, to discuss things with their parents to 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 speak about um about powers of attorney, encourage them to start that conversation with them. That's that's usually the um the the best way to to approach these these topics with um, with people who are perhaps are more elderly, more vulnerable, more afraid, um, and anxious, um, and we explain the benefits, the downsides of not planning. We listen to um, clients' objectives and and the the things that we that we advise um, are are. Um, to help them achieve those, um, we listen to any concerns that they have. We we talk them through, and we encourage clients not to shy away from um, doing what needs to be done because it does involve challenging decisions. I had a client very recently who um, doesn't have any obvious um, obvious family members to help her. She wasn't married. She doesn't have any children. She um, she's lived on her own her her whole life, um, and um, there, there just wasn't anyone that she could think of to appoint, um, particularly in a welfare capacity. Um, it's such a personal role um, for someone to take on. Um, and we, we had a number of meetings. We met on on numerous different occasions to talk through various options. Um, and 
we um, eventually got somewhere with a prospective attorney, somebody that she thought could be a good option. Um, she wanted me to speak to that person. She wanted me to, to explain what was involved in the role um, to point her in the direction of um, guidance. There's very, um, very comprehensive Scottish government guidance on um, acting uh, for somebody um, in in the, the role of an attorney. Um, and I had numerous conversations with the prospective attorney and in the end, um, she she's now going ahead, and she's she's going to sign a a, power, a welfare power of attorney, which is which is great. Um, and it it, w- it was important to take the time to to get there, to take the time to to talk through the options, and it was a very difficult decision for her, um, because of her particular circumstances, um, and her concerns about the family members that she does have around her. Um, there are different options where powers of attorney are concerned. Um, we we discuss those with clients, so you can you can appoint several people um, as your as your continuing and welfare attorneys. Um, you can appoint them jointly so that they act together. Um, they they are usually when you grant a power of attorney, your attorneys are are able to act alone. So if you appoint more than one attorney, they can make decisions alone, but they're duty bound to consult with one another. So the the client has that comfort of knowing that, you know, they're not just handing over all of this, all of this decision-making power to one person, um, that they're handing that over to, to, to two or to, to several people who will have differences of opinion, who will have discussions about what's right. Um, you can appoint substitute attorneys, so you can appoint someone who would act in the first place. Um, and if that person is unable to act, then you've got someone else stepping in, but only stepping in if, if that initial appointment um, can't, can't go ahead or, or has to stop for whatever reason. Um, so there are different different ways um, to 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 draft this document and and it, it it won't you know not every client is going to um is going to give you the same instructions because everybody's circumstances are are, are different okay, and what, if, what what if siblings disagree jessica what if two siblings who are joint powers of attorney what if they disagree on on what's the right thing to do yeah that's that's common um it it, it does it does happen um and we I, I would always encourage um, attorneys to talk things through, to try and work things out together, to to go back to that guidance, um, to that detailed guidance, to think through the principles, um, to discuss matters. Again, attorneys must consider other people's points of view as well, so so must look to other people around the adult that they're supporting to take other considerations when they're acting on behalf of of an adult. So I would encourage them to do that, um, and they can always look to the office of the public. Guardian for um, some support. They are very helpful and they have a, a helpline as well for financial attorneys. So um, I often direct clients there. I direct clients to the Mental Welfare Commission where they're um, struggling to make welfare decisions on behalf of an adult or also to the local authority um, to social work. They can also be a great support to to attorneys who are struggling to to make the right decisions for an adult. But it's just encouraging people to it's, it's okay to have disagreements. In fact, that's that's normal and you would expect that to happen. Um, but I think encouraging people to sit down and talk about them and, and work things through together um, to, to, to come to a, a united decision um, is, is really important. Okay, thank you. And J- J- sorry, Jen, those family dynamics there, uh, how do you know when somebody comes to the helpline if it's a family member 
they might be giving you a particular uh, version of events that may not accord with with someone else who may be another you know a joint power of attorney how do you cut through those challenging family dynamics at Alzheimer's Scotland yeah, and we hear that so much, um, particularly the helpline, because it's anonymous and confidential. Um, we do hear about that breakdown in, in family relationships um, and that tension that comes sometimes when there's really significant decisions that need to be made. But just echoing what, what Jessica said, um, it's very much um, encouraging people to, to go back to the um, to go back to the principles to really, um, you know, think about what this means for the individual, um, because and and that sounds awareness and understanding of those principles are really key I think to finding um, that connection that allows families to make decisions in the person's best interests. Okay thanks very much and we're going to kind of come to a conclusion now Jen so first of all to you can you summarise the sort of broad advice that you would give to individuals and families after a diagnosis of dementia um, that hopefully can lead to better outcomes for all concerned? Be informed. Um, you know, dementia is everyone's business. We're all going to be touched by it at some point in our lives. So it's really important that we make ourselves informed about what's out there and what's available and really how we can support people to live well and how individuals can live well. We want to make sure that we're not waiting until people end up in a crisis situation um, to reach out and get support. That forward plan and that, you know, being um proactive there um, and getting things like power of attorneys in place um, from the get-go um, is really, really important. And it will be a tool that helps people to live well. Um, just knowing that peace of mind, you've got that in place, um, you know, should should you need that. Um, and also speak to people. Peer support is so important, you know, so knowing that you're not in this on your own. Dementia can be a traumatic experience um, for the individual, but for everyone involved. So making sure that you're talking to people and getting good support um, you know, from your, your peers um, and accessing that. So get in touch with Alzheimer's Scotland if you're unaware of where to access that support and we can try and point you in the right direction. Brilliant. And Jessica, a final word to you. What's your broad advice to individuals and families after a diagnosis of dementia? What are the, the simple points they should follow? Come and speak to us um, and um, we will listen to your objectives, your concerns. Um, the advice that we'll give will be bespoke to you, um, to your family, your circumstances, um, bearing in mind what worries you, what you want to achieve. Um, there's there's no one-size-fits-all approach. Um, and as Jennifer said, there's no one experience of dementia. Um, so... Um, it, it, it will be um, bespoke advice tailored to you and to your circumstances, thinking about your future um, and how you want to protect that um, and make sure that you have that peace of mind um, and that will look different for, for different people. Great. So be informed, um, talk to people who've been in similar situations, uh, get professional advice and just above all else, ask questions, just talk and ask questions, find out as much as you can um, if you do find yourself in this situation. Thank you so much to Jen and to Jessica for their excellent insights today. Uh, you've been listening to podcasts by Brodies, uh, where some of the country's leading lawyers and special guests share their enlightened thinking about issues and developments having an impact on the legal sector and wider society and business across the UK. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe to Podcast by Brodies on all your favourite podcast platforms 
And for more information and insights, please visit www.brodies.com.